Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Priya Harpel is a New York-based therapist and the force behind at the underscore therapy underscore notebook on Instagram and TikTok. During the pandemic, she started the Instagram account to give back and educate the public about mental health. Priya takes an intersectional approach to therapy, knowing that our culture and how we exist in society have major influences on our mental health. Priya is on a mission to change the narrative by removing the stigma of seeking mental health services, and we are here for it. Welcome, Priya. Okay, Priya. Welcome. Thank you. I'm honored. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Maybe you should tell some other therapists that. I don't know why they <laughs> act all guns. <laughs> They act all gun shy when I invite him on. I'm like, what? What's that about? It's intimidating. Is that what it is? Oh my <laughs> gosh. The last thing. Conversation so easy and so natural. So look, I, I guess the first thing that I want to get into is a few of the basics. Okay. Sure. So, you know, I have to do a little bit of research and see who's coming on and why. So this is what I've gotten so far. Okay. You are the daughter of two immigrants. I am the youngest. Yes. Let's put it up for the youngest in the family. Yes. Right here. <laughs> Same over here. And um, let's see the youngest of four. Yes. And you identify as Indo-Caribbean. Correct. Yeah. Right. Research. OK, so talk. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about the cultural influences and the birth order that those have had on your journey. Of course. Yeah. So um, Indo-Caribbean, I'm glad that you brought that up, right? It's interesting. What that basically means is a lot of people don't know. It's not a term that we hear every day. It just means that my parents are from the Caribbean. They were born in Guyana specific. Ancestry is from East India. So India. And yes, exactly. So that's what I mean by Indo-Caribbean. And it's funny because I had term myself maybe like four or five years ago. I never had that term growing up. So for me, it was always confusing because I never really fit in with people who identified as Indian or South Asian. And it was confusing because, yes, I do consider my Indian. I am Indian. However, an Indo-Caribbean, meaning my cultural influences are more Caribbean. My parents, it was it's just not the same. The food's different. The music's different. So that was something that I definitely struggled with growing up and wasn't really clear where I belonged. And so when you talk about difficulty fitting in to a category, so when this category was created, how did you, how did you find it? I mean, how did you decide it makes sense to me? You know, it fits. First off, I grew up in Long Island, New York, um, predominantly Caucasian in my area and specifically okay. Orthodox Jewish. So there was not many people. Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. But on top of that, my school was a little more diverse. So I did see other people of color there. However, Again, like when I saw people that looked like me, brown people, they were mostly Indian people. So that's where it was really difficult for me to understand where I fit in in terms of that. My parents were always clear. We were born in Guyana. We're from the Caribbean. This is like our culture. But then also it wasn't very clear as to, yes, you were born here, but ancestry is in India. For me, getting this information only like five years ago, that term specifically. Getting that term into the Caribbean, it just made so much sense to me because I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, 
Indo-Caribbean. That is me. That makes sense. Right. So I remember even just like the other day talking to my aunt about that because she's like, what is that? Like, I've never heard of that. I was like, yeah, you guys do that. (laughs) (laughs) Now I talk to my mom and I use that term and she's like, oh, yes. Yeah. That's how you identify. I know now. So (laughs) that's great. So you're teaching them something. Are they comfortable with it? Are they growing comfortable with the idea? Yeah. Yeah. My mom understands. It's funny. Like what my mom's comfortable with now, my family's comfortable with now. They weren't like before. That's that's great about me being in this field. I think it's definitely opens up a lot of conversation that right. and then that's one of the reasons I'm in this field, right? Like mental health and just things in general weren't really talked about. So for me, yeah. I feel more comfortable talking about different things with my family now. And that's just one of the cultural identity, right? There's a lot right. more in there. right. It's more comfortable. Absolutely. And so when you think about birth order, I mean, I you know, my brother is four years older than me. And I had siblings that spanned 15 years. I'm the youngest of nine. Wow. Yes. So, you know, being the youngest played out differently in a large family with that many age differences. What was it like for you? Yeah. So the youngest for me, everyone always joked that I was like spoiled, but spoiled with love because in our family, yeah, I just got a a lot of the attention and everything. But the thing about being the youngest is not everything you always say is taken seriously, at least in my experience. Right. And it seems like yours too, because you're nodding like that for a long time. And it's interesting. Only recently, I think, I feel like they've started taking a lot of what I said seriously. So that was definitely a change for me. And it's interesting how that progressed. And for me, it's yes, birth order of being the youngest, but it's also cultural influence was really big. Um, It was never speaking up to elders. You never talk back. Right. And being the youngest on top of that, I was always the youngest. Everyone was an elder. So I never like (laughs) like, what happens. Right. So yeah, that for me, it was definitely used together. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Everybody was an elder. It wasn't great at the time, but yeah, looking back at it. I never thought about it that way. That's that's a really that's a really cool way of thinking about it. It's like everybody's an elder. I'll never get to have my voice heard. Yeah. That's funny. And real. Absolutely. That was a big thing. Sitting around the table, like children were meant to be seen but not heard growing up in my culture. So we were always mm-hmm. like sitting around the table. But for me, I was always interested and curious. So I always wanted to know what everyone was talking about. And we have a term called pot salt. So I think that's a good okay. term. It's kind of like the idea that you have to be in everything. So I would always, yeah, I would always want to know what everyone was talking about. My mom and my aunt, they would always call me pot salt, like meaning salt, you put it in, pot, you put it in everything. So yeah, that was me. And I was the youngest. So I was always seen as, I guess, like the stubborn one or the one that had to be in every conversation. And that was- oh, that's interesting. So when you, okay, so what I noticed about birth order and getting older, and you alluded to this a little bit, I just want you to talk a little bit more about it. This idea that you're the youngest, you have this childlike position in the family, and when do you get to be an adult? So when do you think that was recognized for you that, oh, this isn't just the youngest anymore, like she's a full-blown adult? That's a really good question because (laughs) I just turned 30 and there's still times where they don't always acknowledge me as the adult. So it's funny because I definitely think in the last couple of years, they started, like I said, taking me more seriously. And it doesn't help that I'm, I think I'm the only one, well, I know I'm the only one in the family of my siblings that aren't in like our family business. So like, I'm even more separated in that sense. Right. So it's kind of like in terms of taking me seriously lately, I think, yeah, in the last couple of years that there was that shift, but 
growing up, it wasn't really there. I always felt like I had to fight to be heard or kind of say, no, this is what I think. And that's where the stubbornness came in. It's funny. That's deemed stubborn. I think in the last few years, I would say they've been more so coming around. Stubborn or just trying to thrive and figure out, you know, who your, what your identity was. Yeah. I I resent that word. (laughs) (laughs) I can understand that. And I know it's the same in African-American culture. Elders are you don't mess with your elders. Oh, no. You know? So I can relate to that. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Yes, sir. No, sir. And yes, mom. Always. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's a thing. I always say that therapists didn't just fall into being therapists. I teach at graduate school and I say, you didn't just happen to show up on the doorstep. It's not by accident. We've all had experiences that have led us on this path. What would you say is the primary experience you've had that kind of guided you into this profession? Yeah, so it was definitely intentional. As I mentioned earlier, growing up, mental health wasn't really talked about. And it's funny, like we have a thing that we say, and I'm sure you've heard this before, you know, family business stays in the family. You don't take business outside the home, right? That's a big thing. We don't take your business outside of the home. And absolutely. I'm sorry, what was that? No, I'm I'm in such agreement with you. I'm like nodding my head off. Exactly. And it was always interesting to me because yes, we weren't allowed to take the family business outside the home, but you know, we didn't exactly bring the family business inside the home either. We never talked about it inside the home or outside of the home. So I never understood that. Um, that's right. never really made any sense to me because yes, we're not allowed to take it outside the home, but what about even talking about it inside the home? We just didn't talk when it came to things like that. If you struggled, if you were going through something, you were just kind of doing it in silence. I come from a very loving household, to be clear, a very loving family, but we just didn't talk about things. So for me, I think it was definitely an intentional decision. I wanted to get into the mental health fields. I was always curious about the way the mind works, why we do the things that we do, right? And also, if you wanted to get help with your mental health or whatever the case is, there weren't many people that looked like me in the therapy room, right? So that was another very difficult thing. Yes, that's, it definitely was intentional. I think it's so important to take culture into consideration because, and I'm not saying that your therapist has to look like you. My therapist doesn't look like me, but at the same time, it's important that they understand you and you feel seen, you feel heard, you feel understood by your therapist. And you can't do that if they're not taking your culture and your identity and all of you into consideration. I just want to add to that. You're not there to teach them either. Oh, Yeah. I reflect when I teach on therapists that I paid to teach about my culture. I was like, I should go back and get that money back. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, you should. (laughs) That was so messed up. Yes. And they don't have to, and that's what I mean by they don't necessarily have to look like you, but they have to get you. They have to understand your culture. And yes, it's not your job to teach them in that room. Do your own research, figure it out. If you don't know it, do the necessary research, learn about that culture. And honestly, just listen too, right? I'm from more of a collectivist culture, meaning we put the collect the needs of a collective unit or the family unit above all else and above the need of the individual. So if I had a therapist that didn't understand that, they wouldn't understand a lot of my upbringing or my experiences in life. I'm so big on that, the understanding that people from the global majority do come from collective cultures. And you can't do therapy from an individualistic European Eurocentric lens that alienates the collective and wants to pathologize it. Mm-hmm. That's a problem, people. You need to consider what that looks like. Now, that's one of the things that drew me to your page was like you were saying the things that 
I believe in so strongly. And I'm all here for younger people now just really talking about this in a way to make to normalize it. We're not asking for anything extra. This should be an ethical responsibility. It's not the client's responsibility to come in and teach you. It's not the client's responsibility to come in and talk about culture. You have to create a space that facilitates a dialogue about how the macro influences the micro and yes. how your culture informs clinical. It's a, pro- it's a problem that we separate culture from clinical. It's a problem. There we go. Absolutely. And I love that mm-hmm. you said pathologizing, right? And making it a problem. When people talk about like boundaries and wellness and everything, like everything that we do, if I go to a therapist who doesn't understand me and I talk about some family issues, they might say, okay, set a boundary. But my boundaries are not going to look the same as someone else's boundaries because they might take a Western approach to it. Whereas for me, my boundary, especially if I'm setting one with my parents or whatever the case is, it's going to sound much different. We talked about respect, right? So that's going to be playing a huge role in the way that I speak to my parents or my family or whoever it is that I'm setting a boundary within my culture. And in terms of pathologizing, I could definitely see how you know certain dynamics in my family would be seen as enmeshed or unhealthy or whatever the case is. And I'm sure to some extent we are, right? But they're viewing it from a Western lens and that would be the issue. And one thing that you mentioned is that we cannot, sell, we cannot separate right culture and therapy and we really can't. It's the issue. I think people think that we need to take mo- more older approaches, that we need to take some neutral approach to therapy, but we're, as human beings, we're not neutral. We have our biases, right? Absolutely. We have our preconceived notions. No human being is without them. Every, both of us, we have our own biases. That's just how we are. That's how we're wired as human beings. And if we, as a therapist, are not acknowledging those biases are doing the work in our own therapy, in our own rooms with our therapist, that becomes an issue. And that's where things like misdiagnosing occur. It's not by accident that African-American boys are more so diagnosed with ODD, whereas white boys or Caucasian boys are more so diagnosed with ADHD with the same symptoms. So those things don't happen by accident. So it's so important to really understand culture and understand the person that's in front of you in the therapy. And I want to empower people. Everything you're saying, again, I could nod my head off. I agree so intensely. And one of the things that I want people to understand as we destigmatize mental health is you are interviewing someone to determine the fit. And that means asking them questions that might be uncomfortable and seeing how they respond. And what happens in communities of color, the you know, global majority, is that we often find therapy in crisis. And so when you're in crisis, you just want to get in there and you just want to feel better, quote unquote, better. And it's problematic because you don't have the advocacy piece and you always need advocacy. Mental health, medical health is not decolonized yet. We need to go in and investigate and advocate for ourselves. Would you like to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. And again, I love everything that you were saying about that. Mental health, it is important to take all of that into consideration. And absolutely, it's not the work isn't done. We have so much work to do. And so much. Yeah. And just the idea of doing that work and asking those questions, finding a new therapist, it really is a dating process. And I know that's strange to say, but it really is. You're asking the questions, you're figuring out if it's the right fit. And I always tell patients on the first session, you can have the best therapist in the world, but if it doesn't feel comfortable and if you don't feel understood with this person, then it's not going to go anywhere. 
It really won't. You have to feel comfortable with that person. And I don't mean the normal level of discomfort in a new session where this is a new person, you're talking to a stranger, feeling as though they understand you and you're able to feel understood and seen by them. I think understood is lofty. I think that maybe you get to a place of understanding if you're lucky, but how can people in outside of your culture truly understand? I'm more inclined to lean into acceptance. Don't question me about what I'm saying, accept that what I'm saying, and then figure out how to integrate that into the therapeutic process. Because I don't want to push that you should understand something. I I have white friends who don't understand. In fact, we've known me for 50 years. So if they can't understand, then how about you just accept that my reality is my reality and we start to figure out how to have a relationship around that. Absolutely. I like that. I love that differentiation of accepting it, even if you can't understand it yet, accepting that and at least trying to. I think what happens is when I bring up culture as a part of my teaching and my clinical work, people are always surprised. They're always surprised. I do clinical consultations. They're always shocked at the response they get from the client once they take the lead to talk about culture, to bring culture into the room. And it's only surprising because when it comes to race and culture, people are so nervous. They'll talk about so many other things, but they just shut down. And it's Mm -hmm. because they're worried about saying the wrong thing or not understanding enough. And so I just try to take the weight off a little bit and say, just create space in the room for acceptance. Absolutely. And a lot of therapists struggle about when to bring that in the room. Do we bring it in the room or bring it up when the patient or the client brings it up? Or do we just bring it up right off the bat? And I think it's really feeling that situation, feeling that individual person and figuring out when is the right time to bring that up but not being afraid to approach that subject. Yes, culture is so, yeah. You know, I'm just thinking about that. And I'm like, you know, I sat across from many of white therapists who it's obvious we're different. Mm-hmm. And if you're not going to call out that difference, you've already missed the boat for me. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's another thing. We're having immediacy in sessions and not being afraid to bring up the differences between us. So even if you have a therapist of color, but it's a different color or a therapist of right? A different gender or a different gender identity, like bringing that up and not being afraid to and saying, I just want to say right off the bat, you can say it in the beginning, or you can say it as they bring something up. If they're bringing up an experience that maybe I wouldn't understand because I look the way that I look, owning that, saying that and saying, I can understand that I would not fully understand, right? Yeah. And not being afraid to say that. I agree with you completely. I, I so appreciate you saying that. You know, I come in the class and one of the first things I say is I teach through my blackness. And people are a little bit like, I said, you know, don't make any bones about it. Every teacher teach from, teaches from their cultural lens. Yes. They just don't say it. I want to put it out there so that it's clear to you. I'm not going to come from a place that's so comfortable and familiar to you. I'm coming from my experience. In the end, there's a lot of appreciation and gratitude for it. But I I just, it bothers me that people don't, like you say, self-disclose, be transparent, just put it out there that, you know, they talk about creating safety. How do you even think about the idea of what a safe space looks like if you're not being transparent? Absolutely. And as you said, right, our experiences are colored by our culture and the intersectionality of it, right? And all parts of our culture your race, your religion, your immigration status, whatever the case is, all of it. And our experiences are colored by that. And then our experiences influence our mental health status. So all of that is important to bring in the therapy room. We don't our patients or our clients a disservice by not bringing them. I would add it's a disservice. I want people to start considering it as unethical. 
Yes, I agree. I completely agree with you. And since we're on the topic, right, culture is important. Also, politics is important. Therapy is political, right? Oh, man. It's like music to my ears. Yes. Keep going. And today, <laughs> I think today is an amazing day to talk about this because of what happened today, Roe versus Wade. I'm just going to, I hope it's okay. That yeah, no, it was, I was going to get to it later on, but let's get good, into it now. Good. Yeah, let's. <laughs> it's interesting after hearing the news and it's not a surprise. It's definitely not a surprise. We knew it was coming. It doesn't make it any better. Just, it's interesting because as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, oh, I actually have such a fitting conversation with you scheduled for today. What a great day for this to be scheduled. Cause I think this is yeah. so relative to what we're talking about therapy is political. That's what I mean. The fact that something like this can happen and it's going to influence our mental health. It's going to influence our financial health, our, you know, socio, like everything it's, it's, we don't exist in bubbles and to not take these things into consideration again, disservice. I said to anyone who will listen to me, what does your website say? I'm, I'm pretty sure it says LGBTQIA friendly, but does it say anti-racism? Does it say um, mine? No, not you. I saw yours. I know what yours yeah. says, <laughs> but I'm saying it's a question. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you presenting? How transparent are you? Is what I want to people to be clear about. You can't present one way and then be about another thing. And that's mm-hmm. why therapy is activism. The fact that people keep trying to act like there's this neutrality, it's just not honest. And like you said, and I just agree so strongly, this idea that if something huge happened in the country. How do you not check in to see how your client is feeling today? How do you act like that's a separate world? I don't understand that mentality. Absolutely. Yeah. It just makes no sense to me. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't make sense because obviously we're affected by it. And if we're not understanding that experience, then, you know, it's not helpful to that person. Yeah. You alluded to this again, to something else that I wanted to jump on. You said, you know, it impacts mental health. I just want you to stretch that out a little bit. A powerful decision. And and I also love that you said it's not surprising. I am so sick of people being surprised by what's going on in this country. Like, I can't believe it. That's so surprising. You know, that (laughs) that's what conservatives depend upon. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I know you're not expecting it. And then all of a sudden, and that's the thing, right? It's not, I don't want to make this just about that, this conversation. I do want to make it more about mental health, but I do want to say this is not where this ends. This is just one step of like in the whole realm of things. And it's interesting. I was just talking about, I don't know if you've read the book, Handmaid's Tale. I know it's like a show now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't read it. Go ahead. Oh, okay. So I'm not going to go too into it, but it's just a whole, everyone reads that and they're like, oh, that would never actually happen. And I'm not saying (laughs) would, I I don't want to be a I don't want to be a um, conspiracy theorist right now, but what I'm saying is things don't just happen overnight. There's little by little, your rights are taken and then this is taken. And then all of a sudden here we are and no one knows how we got there. You know how, mm-hmm. right? Well, you know, this, look, let's go back to enslavement. <laughs> These same strategies mm-hmm. have been used over and over again. Mm-hmm. How do we continue to act surprised and argue over a two-party system while one extreme party is literally indoctrinating this country into white supremacy mm-hmm. and act like it's not happening because we don't want to vote or we don't want something in a two-party? That's what they love, the divisiveness that is, mm-hmm. that is obvious 
you know, with what we focus on, people who are a little bit more progressive, what we focus on gets lost. Meanwhile, the NRA owns yeah. <laughs> owns government and we're all sitting here arguing about a two party system. It's, like, it's ridiculous. It really wake is. up, people. Yeah. <laughs> and I saw a meme that said women's bodies. Well, I want to say people with uteruses bodies are more regulated than guns in America. And it's true. It's just ridiculous. And you know, I'm glad that you brought up slavery because I'm ashamed to say I didn't learn until college. Was it that people, slavery wasn't always a thing. And then slavery happened over time. And I think that's ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous that I didn't learn that in high school or middle school or whatever. Yeah. Case is. And I also think it's ridiculous that you have freedom and then over time you enslave people. That's how these things happen. I'm going to shift gears on that because that's all that needs to be said about it. I want to go to your platform. You talk about helping clients understand generational cycles to break negative patterns of behavior that no longer serve them. I love that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. We're talking about um, just the idea of, you know, how we arrive of where we are today and how we're impacted by, you know, our parents and our parents before us. And we, like we've talked about so many times today alone is we don't exist in bubbles. And the way that we exist, our cultural identity colors our experiences. Same was said for our parents or great-grandparents. You mentioned slavery, right? All of the things that our great-grandparents and our ancestors and so on dealt with and survived through, it affects them. It affects their ability to cope. It affects their ability to live. It affects their ability to work or not be able to, and their ability to parent. And because of that, their children are affected and they're not able to parent in the same way as well. All these kind of coping mechanisms, whether they're maladaptive or adaptive, were modeled to their children and then so on and then so on. And, you know, we don't exist just because we exist. We exist because of how we were affected by what we, the trauma, the generational trauma, basically, is what it Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's helpful for people to hear different people explain it in their own words because I'm just waiting for that time that it clicks for someone. And so that was so concise and so clear. I appreciate it. You came up with this platform during the pandemic. Yes. Talk talk about how that happened. So you're being isolated like the rest of us, Mm -hmm. and you realize people aren't able to access mental health. And so talk about it. How did it come to fruition? Well, that's exactly what it was, right? You said it perfectly. I think I've always been passionate about mental health and also teaching people about mental health. And that's part of why, like as a CBT therapist, part of what I pull from is CBT. That's why part of me does love CBT because it's yes, mental health, but also teaching people in psychoeducation. And I wanted to give back in a way that was more than just in the therapy room. And I wanted to educate people. I never thought it was going to get to this extent. I did not think I was going to get like that many people. Like I wasn't doing it for the following. And then all of a sudden, like it starts growing and growing. And I'm like, oh, I'm I'm getting some more people. And this is good. This like they're learning. Right. And that's, that's what the intention was behind it. I wanted to get more information to more people because it's not always accessible. Therapy isn't always accessible, right? Not everyone has insurance. Not everyone yeah. can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, go finish that thought. I'm just thinking something's coming up for me as you're saying that. Finish that thought. Not everybody okay. has access to therapy. Yes. Not everyone has access to therapy. Um, not everyone has access to therapists that like we were talking about under like accepts them. I like that. I'm going to start using that. But not everyone has access to that. And because we don't have access to that, I thought it was really important to you know, just 
get any information out there that I could and just make it more accessible to people and make it make it so that they can see what they could. And I always make it very clear that my age is not a substitute for therapy by any means. Yes, but I made that very clear. <laughs> That's where I was um, going. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There we go. So it's not a substitute for therapy by any means. And I make that clear in every post. I make it clear in my disclaimers. It's not meant to substitute. It's not meant to replace. It's only meant to educate. And that's all this is. It's not therapy, to be very clear. I wanted you to say that because I know people go there and they're like, oh, I'm good. But I like that Mm -hmm. you offer that disclaimer regularly and you help people understand, look, it's a segue. It's an opportunity. Always. I I saw this on social media. I want to come in and therapy and talk about it. It's a a wonderful way to develop user-friendly language for therapy. Absolutely. It's more of like a community and it's more of trying to educate people. But no, it's not therapy. And I make that so clear as many as I can, because that's where I think people get into trouble because they're thinking anything that they see on you know, social media, like I'm, that's what I'm taking as the holy grail. It's not. You mentioned intention. And so I wanted to ask if the impact is what you intended because it's blown up. Yeah, no, I, I don't think I ever, I intended to just like teach people and then the impact is like more than I intended, like, I, I don't know. No, I don't even think they're mad. <laughs> I just think it's ridiculous how much it grew up. And I'm like, it's Oscar syndrome creeps in. And I'm like, wait, why? Like, why are these people? <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> Funny. Yeah. When I see that, definitely. I think I did intend to educate people and the impact. I hope, I hope it aligns. I, I, I know I joked around, but I do hope that it is teaching people. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it absolutely is. I, I love when you creatives come in and do all the work for me because, you know, I'm old school. I've been around a long time. And so it's like, I'm not teaching anything new. I'm just looking for people's pages. I like repost them and give them credit. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. That's wonderful for me. <laughs> I do that a lot too, right? Like I, if it's a place where I'm not comfortable going, but I think it's important for people to know, like I'm, I'm going to post that too, because I know where I can go and where I'm not so whatever people, when they're talking about a certain topic or they're doing it in a certain way, like all these people dancing on TikTok, I'm never going to do it, but I'll, I'll post it if you're putting good information on there while you're doing it, right? <laughs> all these therapists become uh, dancers. It's great. I love watching it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm too, I'm too old for that. I'm too old. Yeah, I'm not. get wrap myself around that. <laughs> I'm too shy for that. <laughs> You don't seem shy. I mean, you have such a great smile and you seem so um, warm and inviting. I'm like, wow, I, shy. That doesn't come up for me at all when you're uh, posting. Oh, you're posting. thank you. You know, it's so funny. My mom, I, I mentioned my mom a lot. We were talking not so long ago about how um, I was never like that growing up. I was a shy one. You mentioned like birth order. I was the young, the shy one. Like I was always around, like wanting to hear other people's conversations and stuff. But I was always someone listening and like quiet and just kind of around, right? So okay. I was definitely shy growing up. And my sisters, they'll sometimes laugh and like, look at the stuff she's posting. Like, this was not her growing up. I was shy. <laughs> and I still am sometimes, but this definitely made me more outgoing. I'm, I'm definitely an introvert. Well, I think the impact in your community has probably been the catalyst for that because they're, they're so into it. So how can you not feel like, you know, hey, I got something for you today. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. They're so excited about it. It's amazing. Oh, thank you. you posted something recently that I want to get to before we run out of time. You posted 
about the signs of depression that may not present as sadness. I want you mm. to talk about that a little bit because I think that's so important, particularly now, the time where we are and people do not necessarily realize how emotionally impacted they are by everything that's going on. So would you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. And thank you for bringing that up. So I think people have this misconception of depression of, oh, that person looks so sad and that means they're depressed, but it doesn't always present that way. And a big thing with depression is sometimes it presents as emotional numbness, right? You know, feeling just difficult naming your feelings and difficulty um, really understanding what that is and difficulty understanding what that looks like. And it looks different for everyone, right? So one thing about therapy is we do not treat the diagnosis, we treat the person. The diagnosis looks different for everyone. So it's so important to understand the umbrella of what that looks like, all the different signs of depression and, you know, just like the brain fog of it and not understanding like little things and isolating and not wanting, you know, canceling plans and things like that. And all of a sudden I'm doing that more. Obviously, if that's always been you and that's always been your personality, then that's not what we're talking about. But all of a sudden you're doing that more and more. And then all of a sudden remembering certain things and you're not interested or having the same pleasure in the things that you used to have pleasure in. So all of that. I would also add this work ethic, right? Because a lot of people rely on work ethic to determine whether or not they're functioning appropriately. And just because you're working 100 hours a week does not mean it's a healthy focus for you to have that much of the time. That can also be a sign of depression. Absolutely. Yes. And I'm glad you brought that up because hustle culture is real. Like this whole idea that productivity is the most important thing and you know, the value. And sometimes when we're not able to keep up with that productivity, it makes us feel even worse, right? It's more of a downward spiral and a feedback Mm -hmm. because we're thinking that's what, you know, is value in this country. And that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to working and being productive. And if you're not able to, then you're going to feel even worse. And you're going to even those intrusive thoughts, those negative thoughts are going to kind of run into a circle. Right, right. You know, um, I want to make sure that we get all your handles in here before we run out of time. So let me, I'm trying to think of the order. Okay. First, let me ask you this question. Then we'll get your handles in. So where do we go from here as a society? What are you thinking? What does the global majority need to do? What does society need to do? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, so much. I think it's important that on, yes, on an individual level that we are, um, you know, just being aware, being aware of know, ourselves and also how we interact with others, but also we talked about collective, the collective and the community. And I think it's a balance of the two. Yes, the individual and working in ourselves, but also looking at the community and how we can help each other. I always talk about self-care, but also community care and combine mm-hmm. that. It's always a balance. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think what we need to do. And I think we just need to be aware and educate each other. And that's all we can do. And educate ourselves. Yeah, I- I appreciate that. Yeah. So give us all the handles. Where are you? Where can people find you? Sure. So the therapy notebook on Instagram, my website is priyaharpal.com, which is my name. And I'm new on TikTok. So you can find me there as well. The therapy notebook. And I think that's it. Yeah. Look, I truly value your presence, what you do. You're so lovely. I really appreciate this conversation. And now you have to promise to come back because there's so much more I could have gotten into with you. I just totally feel in this vibe of intersectionality and being able to have a conversation with someone who's well-versed and just the comfort level is there because, you know, we don't, we don't have that necessarily as prevalent in the therapeutic community as we should. So I value it. Yeah, I would love to come back. Thank you for having me this first time. And 
It was, you're, you're absolutely right. There can be so many different conversations that we can have about this alone. I can't imagine how many podcast episodes we can have talking about these types of things because it's important that we do have these conversations. We have to make it user-friendly and we have to do it as a collective. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's clear how you're changing the narrative. I'm so happy to be a witness to it and absolutely consider this an opportunity to collaborate again and definitely come back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Take care, Priya. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IamMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review and let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.